Laura Gill Ralston, and the teaching text for today is Genesis 49.10, which says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between, from between his feet, until he whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for giving us a space and a time and the opportunity to come together as a congregation and to worship you. Um, Lord, please just show us in this text what you need us to hear. Um, make us uncomfortable with where we are so we can grow. Um, God, I pray that this week we shine your light, but we also look to you as our Savior and we recognize and understand what you did for us on the cross. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, y'all can be seated. In 2013, Emily, Emily's my wife, Emily and I had the chance to go to Israel with my pastoral mentor at Asbury, where I previously served. We got to go to Israel. Uh, Emily was pregnant with our second, Sam, at the time, and I remember very vividly we packed a lot of luggage because Emily brought an entire suitcase just dedicated to snacks in case in her first trimester nothing sounded quite right. She was always very well armed with food. And uh, we, we, you know, had super long flights, and we landed in Tel Aviv, and then we got in our charter bus with all of the folks who were going on the trip with us, and we drove up to Jerusalem. And as we wound our way through uh, the countryside, we started going up this, this small mountain or this large hill and parked, and we got out. And behind us, there was this arid desert or wilderness-type scene. The Jordan River was not far off in the distance, but before us, Filling our entire field of vision was the old city of Jerusalem. And then front and center with this gilded dome was the, the Temple Mount. Uh, the, 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 the Dome of the Rock is there now. It's now an Islamic shrine. But this real estate right here is some of the most like, important and hotly contested real estate on the entire globe. Uh, the Dome of the Rock is important to Jews and to Muslims and to Christians. It's supposed to be the site where Abraham was instructed by God to, to sacrifice Isaac, and there God intervened and provided the ram. It's the place where uh, Solomon built the temple, where the Holy of Holies dwelled. The tabernacle had been there, this place of incredible importance. Uh, the temple itself had been destroyed in A.D. 70 when Romans came in, something that Jesus foretold would happen in Matthew's gospel. He said, not one stone is going to stand on top of another because you didn't recognize the day of God's coming to you. And, you know, you'd, I'd read about the temple. I'd, you know, I'd been around the Bible for a bit in my life, but nothing prepared me for the sheer magnitude of the thing. And there was something very awe-inspiring to me about just standing there looking at this place where, like, Jesus was there. But even the, the perch from which we were looking at old Jerusalem and looking at the Temple Mount was, was like hallowed ground, ground as well. Because I found myself in the middle of this grove of olive trees. I was, I was on the Mount of Olives. Uh, home to Gethsemane, where, where Jesus prayed before his arrest, Lord, if you're willing, let this cup be taken from me, and yet not as I will, but as you will. He went to the disciples, can't you stay awake for just a little bit and pray with me? And then finally said, here, my betrayer's coming, and Judas kissed him. Jesus is arrested and taken off to trial. But this place, the Mount of Olives, was, was so, so important. On the north side of the Mount of Olives, there was this narrow road that went very sharply down toward the eastern gate of the city. 
And one day, nearing the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, he ordered two of his disciples to go ahead of him. He had been in Bethany, where Mary and Martha had lived, and find the colt of a donkey and said, my master Jesus has need of it. And so this, this person gave up their donkeys, and Jesus got it, and he got himself on the donkey, and he began to gently go down the road from the Mount of Olives toward the eastern gate of the city, fulfilling the words of the prophet Zechariah. He said, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. And on that day, which is known as Palm Sunday, which we said marks the beginning of Holy Week, we remembered when Jesus entered Jerusalem, being lauded and cheered on by the people, being welcomed as their king. And to say that this moment had come with a lot of expectation is a massive understatement. Since the days of Jacob and his sons, which we've been talking about for the last uh, couple of weeks in the book of Genesis, since the days of Jacob and his sons, expectation had been arising that one day a king would come from this family who would rule not just over Israel, but over all the nations of the earth. And the text that Laura Gale just read for us in Genesis 49, the context of it is you have an aging Jacob whose name was changed to Israel. You have an aging Jacob who's getting all of his kids together before he passes, and he's speaking over them words of blessing. And these are not just words of, I love you, I'm so proud of you, words of encouragement. These words have a kind of prophetic weight to them. And Jacob is speaking words of prophecy over his children. Genesis 49.1 says, Jacob called for his sons and said, gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in the days to come. And so one by one, the kids come up to receive dad's blessing, dad's, this prophecy that dad's going to speak over them. Some of the words of prophecy perhaps felt less helpful than others. Uh, for example, to his son Gad, he said, Gad will be attacked by a band of raiders. All right, super helpful, dad. Are you going to tell me when and where this is going to happen so that I can prepare? Nope. Okay, well, thanks a lot for that. Also, thanks for naming me Gad. (laughs) But to the fourthborn of this family, uh, to Judah, Jacob speaks these words of of blessing and prophecy. It's what Laura Gale just read. He said, the scepter, it's like immediately royal kingly imagery. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. That's like Lord of the Rings language right there. The the scepter shall not depart until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. These words of prophecy from Jacob to Judah, but in the presence of all his sons, echoed through the generations. As the tribes of Jacob multiplied in Egypt, becoming themselves a nation, Then they were enslaved for 400 years under the pharaohs. They were delivered by Moses, wandered the desert, received the law, reclaimed the land under Joshua, gains and losses, order and lawlessness under the period of the judges, until the people cried out for a king. They wanted to be like the other nations, give us a king. And so from the tribe of Benjamin, not Judah, from Benjamin, a king comes, he's appointed, he looks like a king, he walks like a king, he's he's strong and super, super ripped like me. little loud, too loud of laughter. Um, 
but Saul turns out to be a dud. And as Saul's kingdom is coming to an end, who does the prophet Samuel anoint but a boy, the youngest, from the tribe of Judah, from the family of Jesse. It's David, the, the little brother, the shepherd, who establishes a monarchy and he unites the tribes of, Indra, of Jacob under a single banner. And because of David's zeal for the Lord, his heart for the Lord, God promises him, I'm going to make your family line into an everlasting dynasty. <clears throat> but as the generations go on, the line of kings to come from David uh, would be led astray again and again by false gods. And as a consequence, they were plundered by the nations, a far cry from uh, the prophetic word spoken over Judah that the obedience of the nations would be belong to the Davidic kings. First it was Assyria, then it was Babylon, then it was the Medes and the Persians, and then it was the Greeks led by Antiochus. And now at the time of Jesus, with no Davidic king on the throne, they were under the thumb of the Romans. And still they were awaiting the fulfillment of this prophecy. But now in the fullness of time, Jesus had come. Born in Bethlehem in the town of David from the tribe of Judah, from this kingly line, Jesus had come. Down the Mount of Olives he came, riding a donkey he came, as a healer with authority, with wisdom he came, and the people hailed him as their Messiah with these messianic acclamations. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, save us, blessed is the King of Israel. Seditious words to cry out in earshot of the Roman overlords and occupiers. In the Gospels, this is to me one of the most striking texts. Because you have this moment where it feels like Jesus should be doing a victory lap and he's, he's coming down from the Mount of Olives in toward the eastern gate of the city. He's not cheering, he's weeping. At this moment where you think thousands of years of prophecy are being fulfilled, Jesus weeps. And not like a, I just won the Miss America pageant, I can't believe it's happening kind of weeping, but a sorrowful weeping. He weeps because he knows the people have set their hopes on him to come as a king in the way of kings that they've known. Political and, and, and military warriors who rule by might with a sword in their fist. He weeps knowing that their idolatrous commitment to retaking the nation is going to cost them the nation that God gave their forefathers. He weeps because they pin their hopes on him to dominate and overthrow the nations of the world, when in reality, he comes to fulfill the Abrahamic mandate to bless all the nations of the world through what he's about to do in the city of Jerusalem. He was coming to build a kingdom not through the death of his enemies, but over his own dead body. He would achieve victory not through arms, but by stretching out his arms in surrender on the cross. Jesus wept because they misunderstood the kind of king he was coming to be. From, from beginning to end, the Bible is the story of the ascent of the one true king. And the human story, our story, is going to be consummated at the ultimate and victorious and final return of the king to renew and restore all things and set all things to rights. And just as the Bible itself is the story leading to the king, so the ancient path that we've been talking about now for three months, 
this pilgrimage into the way of Jesus, this manner of being in the world that has set our hearts on like learning the way of wisdom, the, the, the best way to live from God. The ancient path is a lifelong pilgrimage into greater intimacy with and deeper allegiance to and more complete submission before Christ our King. But if this is true, that for, for those of us who are following Jesus, this pilgrimage is just a greater journey into allegiance to Christ our King, there's a unique situational thing that we have to deal with as Americans, a unique situational challenge for those of us who came of age in this country. There's a proclivity that we have that we have to confront in order to realize true Christian progress. And it's this, that as Americans, uh, we've inherited a national story that tells us that kings are something to be overthrown and kings are something to be laughed at. And, you know, Americans are often very amused. I am not in the least bit <laughs> about the British royal family. I mean, some people, some of you are like really deep end into the British royal family and can draw the whole family tree. It's like, I hope you have fun with that hobby. But some people are really amused by the whole thing. But we certainly don't fear the queen and her power, though she certainly has power. We don't take over seriously the reign of the royal family. To us, monarchy is like King George and Hamilton. It's like cute, he wears a fluffy little white hat, and he has a great accent. But it's not an enduring and attractive form of government. Our country was established by overthrowing the monarchy and insisting on a government by the people and for the people. In a model that banks everything on our ability to rule ourselves. Uh, it's almost cliche at this point to quote Alexis de Tocqueville, but Alexis de Tocqueville was a French diplomat and political science, scientist and writer who came to the United States in the middle of the 19th century, who upon returning to France wrote this really important uh, two-volume work entitled Democracy in America. The American experience in democracy, experiments in democracy preceded the French, and so a Frenchman came and observed and asked, how are things going? And he shared observations about how the young country was doing. Uh, de Tocqueville said, the best laws cannot make a constitution work in spite of morals. And morals can turn the worst laws to advantage. Tocqueville was saying that self-rule might work if the people who are self-ruling are moral and good and trustworthy. And on the converse, the whole experiment is going to implode if the people are not moral themselves, don't have a sense of uh, a moral compass that's guiding them and restraining their passions. But from a biblical perspective, uh, periods of self-rule were often some of the most tumultuous and corrupt with the most injustice and chaos. Uh, the period of the Judges, uh, which is like the sixth book in the Bible, uh, ends with these really chilling words. It says, In those days Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. And it went very poorly when everyone did as they saw fit. But those of, for those of us who are learning the way of Jesus, we know that the gospel trains us to understand that self-rule just doesn't work as well as one might hope. Because we all have these proclivities to sow the seeds of our own destruction. Paul said in Romans, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone astray, each of us to our own ways. The prophet Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. 
And since we understand this to be true, we know the path of wisdom then means willfully submitting to external authority because of our own internal lawlessness. The path of wisdom is saying, I need a king, a ruler, a master over me because I cannot rule and master and govern myself into being well. It's like that that line is so good from come thou fount. Let thy goodness like a fetter, like a chain, bind my wandering heart to thee. I know I am prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. So chain me up, tie me to you because I'm going to run away on my own. Now, in order to more fully restore our understanding of our need of a king and the joy that we can and ought to feel at the inauguration of Christ as king, we need to rebuild our moral imagination for the gift of good kings. This week I listened to a lecture. You should listen to it. You have to pay three bucks for it. But it's called uh, Fairy Tales and the Moral Imagination by this guy named Andrew Pudawa. Great last name, Pudawa. Uh, fairy Tales and the Moral Imagination. And Andrew Pudawa is an educator who said, and just follow me here, he said there are different kinds of knowledge. Uh, one kind of knowledge is scientific knowledge. We go out into the universe and we just, we just uh, observe the natural world, the, the way that the moon changes, the sun rises, the sun sets, you watch a tree, and you can infer scientific knowledge. Uh, the second kind of knowledge Pudawa said we have is uh, logical knowledge, which is like if A, then B. Using our brain and our reason and our faculties, we developed a kind of uh, um, logical knowledge, which tends to be much more abstract than scientific knowledge. The third kind of knowledge says we have is dialectical knowledge, which is uh, knowledge based on argument. I'm, I'm using dialectical arguments right now to try to convince you to believe something. Uh, when you're a jurist and you're on trial, uh, lawyers are, are using dialectical knowledge to try to sway you. It's not ultimately certain, uh, but, but it's a kind of knowledge that's come one through argument. But then finally, and this is perhaps one that you've not considered before, he talks about poetic knowledge. And poetic knowledge means those things that just deeply and intuitively you know to be true. It's kind of like, you know, who was your best friend when you were in the third grade? You name them, and I ask you, like, well, how do you know that that was true? Well, it's just true. It just is. Poetic knowledge, there are some things that we know by poetic knowledge that we perhaps can't explain why we know them. Uh, speaking in the world of fairy tales, Pudawa says one of the things that we've learned that we know by poetic knowledge is that kings should love their people, and the people should love their king. Uh, there's, a, there's a kind of poetic knowledge that we have that kings uh, ought to be good. And history has many times proven otherwise that kings are not good. But we have this intuitive sense that they should be, that they should love their people. We know intuitively that uh, trolls and dragons and witches are bad and should be confronted. And maybe Harry Potter fans would argue with some of these things, but we know intuitively that there is a, there's evil, and evil should be dealt with. Injustice should be dealt with and confronted, especially by good people in authority. The third thing he says that we know intuitively to be true is that frogs can turn out to be princes, and princes can very often turn out to be frogs. And then finally he says we know that magic exists. And by this he means there are things that happen in life that you can't scientifically explain, that just 
like you just know to be true. There was, there was something fishy about it. It defies explanation. And Pudawa explores the question, how do we know these things? By what means do we come by this poetic knowledge? And he says that growing up, it's the stories that we hear or fail to hear that develops this kind of poetic knowledge. Stories do much more than just entertain or amuse us. Stories shape and form our our moral imagination, our sense of what's good and true and beautiful. He says that there are four kinds of stories that shape us as individuals in different ways. Uh, One of these is called whole stories, W-H-O-L-E, whole stories. And in whole stories, good is good, bad is bad, and good wins in the end. So you could probably think of some examples of that. Uh, A classic archetype of a whole story is Cinderella. In Cinderella, you have this humble, pure person in in an unfortunate situation with evil oppressors. And by divine intercession or or interaction, this poor person is lifted out of their misery and there's justice against the oppressors. That's a whole story. Good is good, bad is bad, good wins in the end. The second kind of story he talks about are what's called healing stories. And in a healing story, good is good, bad is bad, and good ultimately wins, but not necessarily in the way that you expect. A great example of this is a film that came out probably 20 years ago called Life is Beautiful. Has anybody seen Life is Beautiful? Okay, oh, not nearly enough of you have seen this. It's, it's, in, it's in Italian, it's subtitled, but it features Roberto Benigni, who's funny whether you speak Italian or not. And Life is Beautiful is the story of this uh, father and mother and a five-year-old who uh, are living in uh, Nazi Germany. And they are uh, arrested. The three of them are sent to a concentration camp. And uh, uh, father and son stick together. And the mother is separated. And they're in a concentration camp. And it's the story of how this dad keeps hope and humor alive and his child alive in the middle of a concentration camp. Well, at the very end, the father is killed. The son lives and is miraculously reunited with his mother. In some ways, evil wins the story, but it it couldn't conquer this family. Hope ultimately won. This dad's humor and stubbornness and unwillingness to be defeated internally kept hope alive. And it it goes on to be a deeply inspiring movie. Good is good. Bad is bad. Good wins, but not quite in the way that you expect. That's a healing story. The third kind of story is a broken story. And in a broken story, good is good, bad is bad, and bad wins. For some reason, uh, high schoolers are often instructed to read broken stories. So think about like The Catcher in the Rye. Think about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Think about Lord of the Flies. These are stories where bad wins and there's no redemption. It's just depressing. (laughs) Broken stories can be valuable to read if you ask the right questions. If you're reading a broken story with a kid, a way to bring redemption out of a story where bad wins is asking, if you were in that situation, if you were the protagonist in the story, what would you do to bring about a different outcome? By projecting yourself into the broken story and asking how can it be healed, there's an opportunity for a redemptive edge to let it shape you positively. Otherwise, it's just depressing. And then the fourth kind of story, Pudawa says, is a twisted story. And in a twisted story, good is evil. And evil is good. 
The, the heroes of the story are the evil ones. A, a film that I hope you won't watch, sincerely, is A Clockwork Orange by Stanley Kubrick. Don't watch the movie. Uh, a, a video game that reflects a twisted storyline is a Grand Theft Auto, which probably like tons and tons, millions and millions and millions of people have played. And in this film and in these games, uh, evil is glorified. The good guys are the bad guys. The, the terrible, like depraved behavior is, is championed, is prized. Now, as children, the most important stories for us to read and to hear are whole and healing stories. And with the right environmental conditions, a trusted person who can help like, ask the right questions, we can also gain from broken stories, learning to assert and develop our own moral imagination. But generally, twisted stories where good is evil and evil is good uh, are to be avoided because they're just dangerous for our souls. Uh, Pudua argues that especially in really good fairy tales, and I'm not talking about ones that Disney has like changed the storyline. I mean like Hans Christian Andersen, like go to the source. Pudua argues that especially in good fairy tales, unless conditions prevent, kids learn to be naturally drawn to goodness and truth and beauty. With the right kind of stories being told to us, they learn to discern and to intuitively demand that people should use whatever power they have for good, that evil should be confronted. But without proper nurturing, uh, kids can become victims of influences that cause them to be attracted to evil and deceit and ugliness. They can be trained to, to mistrust and to reject any and all kinds of authority, even if it intends good. Well, how does this happen? And how does this happen to us? Very sadly, we live in a world that is being inundated with broken and twisted stories. And I don't mean just in fairy tales and movies. I mean like we see kings who should be good behaving poorly. We see parents who should be perennially safe behaving poorly and twisting the moral imagination of all of us. Who can we trust? Our internal computers are being programmed to confuse good and evil, beauty and ugliness, truth and lies. From the raunch and the vulgarity that is most radio pop music, to the violence and the gore and the depravity of tons of TV and movies, to the exhibitionism and the image obsession of social media, to the grotesqueries of real-world leaders, including people like me, like priests and pastors who abuse their power and leave a wake of victims. And it almost feels like our hearts don't stand a chance at believing that there's still, there's still hope, there's still goodness. Our poor, worn-out souls are so atrophied and beaten to a pulp that we can no longer readily discern or develop an appetite for that which is best for us. Our worldview is so contorted and distorted that we come to believe that no one else can be trusted, that following our own heart or intuition is ultimately the highest good and the thing that we can do. We're trained to believe that having another over us to rule over us is ultimately something to be rejected. We won't listen to those who point us in true to true north. We're like the character Sophie in uh, W. Somerset Malm's The Razor's Edge who upon the tragic death of her child and her husband in a car wreck finds herself lost in grief and seeking refuge in opium dens and under the rule of an abusive pimp. 
And when her childhood friend Larry rescues her and tries to love her back to life, she finds herself incapable of receiving his love and living in an environment of safety and security. And so she willfully returns to her prison, only there to meet a fatal end. In a world like ours, it's sometimes easier to believe that ours is ultimately a broken or a twisted story, which is why we must keep the story of this week, the story of Holy Week, front and center in our hearts. We need to remember that kings can be good, and it's a gift to have King Jesus ruling over us and love, and we need to remember the manner in which He's come to us. Though He was offered a ruling scepter, the dominating scepter, He would not be a king like Herod, and He would not be a king like Caesar. He would not be a king like Antiochus, which is, Paul, which is why Paul can say in Ephesians chapter 2, have the same mindset in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be exploited. But rather, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We need the beauty of the Christian story of King Jesus to break apart our stony hearts and teach us to trust and to hope again. Though everyone be found a liar, he would be found true. Though every other power broker be found abusive, he would be found trustworthy. Though every male be found toxic, he would still be found good. Kings are supposed to be good. Kings are supposed to love their people. Ours is and ours does. I feel like I've been having an inordinate number of conversations with people who are struggling to believe in Jesus because they, were, they are struggling with evangelicalism. They're struggling with how people, especially Christian leaders in power, have abused their power and the authority, and so they're losing by extension the ability to trust in Jesus. Do you trust in Him? You trust that as screwed up as, you know, pastor types can be and, and as screwed up as our parents at times can be and people in authority can be, do you trust that he's ultimately good? What is there in your story that's shaping your moral imagination, your ability to follow the true north that Jesus sets for us? And as you think today about how you think about God and how you cope with the imagery of Jesus as king, I want to ask you to consider, consider the stories that are shaping your moral imagination. And I'm not talking about like you should only listen to Christian radio and watch Kirk Cameron movies, okay? That's not what I'm talking about. I don't do that. But what are the stories that you've let into your heart that are shaping your moral imagination? In what ways are they informing, encouraging, or discouraging your ability to believe? Consider using the, the filter of those four story types, the kind of stories that are being told in the music and movies and shows and podcasts and social media that you consume. Are they whole and healing stories? 
Uh, are you being filled with stories that, that inspire in you the deepest sense of what's true and good and beautiful? If they're broken, are you inviting the Lord to leverage those stories to shape you in a redemptive kind of way? If they're twisted, have you considered in what ways these stories might be unintentionally misshaping you and leaving you worse for it? I also want you to consider that the imagery of Christ as king, to what degree are you inviting his reign in your life? To what degree, in what ways might you have a split allegiances? I love the song. I quote it almost every year, one way or another, by Derek Webb. He says, my first allegiance is not to a flag, a country, or a man. My first allegiance is not to democracy or blood, but to a king and a kingdom. What is rivaling your allegiance to Christ the King? And what steps might you take even today as we receive communion to invite the Holy Spirit to search your mind and your heart, to point out areas in which you're not yet fully trusting Him or He hasn't subdued you? What, what areas of your life might you actively invite His reign in your life? We need a baptism of the deepest and the truest story of all. We need a deep cleansing of the broken and the twisted stories that we've both ingested and also lived, that have hardened us and made us unable to believe or to see the good. And reordering and retelling our stories is precisely what we do when we worship. And last week, if you were here, we ended the service telling a story through song about the kind of king we has and what he does. What does our king do? You rebuild, you restore all that's broken from the ruins. You redeem, you return all that's stolen from your children. That's what you do. Reshaping our moral imagination is also what we do when we receive Holy Communion. When we come up with open hands and someone puts uh, the little shot glass of juice and the little plastic wafer in our hands, this is the body and the blood of Christ given for you. We remember that this great story of all and its benefits are appropriated to those of us who believe. We remember, he did this even for me. And this story of the table invites us to reform our imagination. We remember the story that the world was good, the world is broken, and the world will be made new again. Our King will make all things new again. Let's pray together. Well, King Jesus, we pledge our allegiance to you. We honor you. We worship you. We want to serve you more fully, more completely. I pray that you would inspect our hearts and minds, that you'd lovingly confront us where because of our own stories we've been twisted, our stories have been broken, we ask you to renew and to redeem. For those who find it especially difficult to trust that you are good and that you are trustworthy, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would break their heart with the beauty of the cross, with the beauty of how you leveraged your power. Jesus, knowing that all things had been put under his power, that he had come from the Father and would return to the Father, got up from the table, took off his outer garment, and he washed those stinky and smelly feet. Returning to the seat, he said, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. And if I, your teacher and Lord, have done this for you, so you should do this to each other. Lord, teach us the kind of king you are, how trustworthy you are, and help us to more fully reflect the kind of king you are into the world as we live as ambassadors for the kingdom in our homes and in our places of work and in the city of Tulsa and in the world, help us to reflect your character, your goodness, 
reminding the world that kings can be good. In Jesus' name, amen.